All right, Alexander, let's talk about what is going on in Ukraine. And let's start things off this time around, not with what is going on on the uh, battlefield. Maybe we'll do that in the second part of the video. But let's talk about uh, Alensky's trips. You know, we did a video two days ago. And in that video, we said, you, you said in your segment that you expect Alensky. The video is actually Alensky's going back to Kiev. And that's what we were talking about after his trip throughout Europe. And you said, I expect him to be leaving Kiev in a couple of days. I said, yeah, he's going to bolt. Sure enough, in a couple of days, he landed in Kiev. He was there for two, three days. And now he's he's traveling again. He's on the road yeah. again. Uh, completely predictable. The guy's in trouble. He looks like he's a complete mess. Uh, he, he's probably not so scared of the Russians, as we said in our video a couple of days ago, but he's more afraid of, of what's happening in Ukraine. And, uh, and the situation there is is catastrophic. And so... I think the entire collective West is in panic mode. They have no plan. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. The latest wonder weapon is going to be the F-16 because the Patriot air defense wonder weapon lasted by, like, like a day. That was like a one-day wonder weapon uh, excitement, and that's now gone, and now we're moving on to the F-16s. Anyway, uh, Saudi Arabia, why did he get an invite from Saudi Arabia? That's actually an interesting uh, development. And of course, the invite to, uh, to Japan, to Hiroshima, and he will go to Hiroshima. That was uh, something that doesn't surprise me. But uh, we said he's going to travel. And sure enough, yes. two, three days in Kiev and, and he's gone. This is someone that does not want to be in Ukraine. It is crystal clear. He doesn't want to be in Kiev. Absolutely. This is exactly what he's become. And can I just say, I mean, a leader who's traveling so much is not a leader who's governing his country anymore. I mean, in order to govern your country, I'm not sure that Zelensky ever governed his country. But um, in order to govern your country, you have to be in your country. I mean, it's not by definition. You can't run things from your airplane. Anyway, he's off. Um, reports from Reuters say that he's accepted an invitation to attend the Arab League summit. He's on his way to attend the Arab League summit. And as you said, after that, it's Japan. Next stop is Japan. Who knows where he's going to go to next? But he's going to find somewhere, no doubt, where he can go. And he's clearly, as absolutely rightly said, he doesn't want to be in Kiev. He doesn't want to be in Ukraine. He's, I suspect, in the under increasing pressure in Ukraine. There's talk that even Poland is now trying to put pressure on him to step down because they're looking for a peace agreement. There's an article that's just come out in Politico in the United States, which is saying that some people in the United States are now looking to freeze the conflict on Korean lines. You know, the, what happened with the Korean War, the end of the Korean War, it was basically, it was never resolved, it was just frozen, that they're trying to freeze it now. If that happens, of course, but, uh, by the way, I'm not sure why the Russians would agree to that, but if that were to happen, Zelensky's position would be impossible in Ukraine after all the things that he said. But anyway, one way or the other, he doesn't want to be in Kiev. Now, why is he going? Why did the Saudis extend that invitation to him? I'm going to say straightforwardly why I think they did that. I think that the Saudis 
or MBS, who now is clearly the person in charge, he wants to play a game of balance. So he's now made the rapprochement with Iran. He's, at this moment in time, receiving Assad in Saudi. Assad is in Saudi Arabia. He's cut oil, um, oil production or actions that the United States doesn't really like. The US has been putting all kinds of pressure on the Saudis, trying to find out why the Saudis are doing these things, criticising the Saudis. So I think MBS says, well, you know, let's get a little bit of the heat off. Let's have Zelensky in uh, Saudi Arabia. He can come here. He can attend the Arab League summit. He's not going to do anything. I mean, he's just visiting. We give him a sort of staging post, but it takes a little bit off of the heat off us from the Americans. And the Russians don't care. That's the important thing to understand. The Russians don't mind if Zelensky goes to Saudi Arabia. It doesn't affect Russia's relationship with the Saudis. The, the Russians understand this very well. So this is cost-free as far as MBS is concerned. The key story is not the fact that he's going to Saudi Arabia, the fact that he's going on to Japan. I mean, Japan is a member of the G7 and all that. The key story is that he doesn't want to be in Kiev. At the earlier part of the war, he didn't want to leave Kiev. Now he doesn't want to stay there. And that tells you more than anything else what the real situation in Ukraine is. Yeah, here's the problem with Elensky traveling around the world. The more he travels, the more the world hates him. Yes. The more he shows of himself, the more people despise him. The more they listen to him, the more they despise him. He's, he reminds me of Hillary Clinton. The more Hillary Clinton would talk, the more everyone would just be like, I can't stand her. Alensky is the same exact way. The more they, they, they take him from country to country, the more the people of that country just, just listen to him, look at his actions, look at his attire, look at the gifts he gives, and they just say, this guy yeah. is a clown, and, and, and they just don't like him. And that is a big, big problem for the collective West. The elites, the elites, they love Alensky, but the citizens... When they get a, a taste of him, they're just like this. I, I can't believe I'm giving money to this guy. I mean, they despise absolutely. him. So absolutely. That's, yeah. That's absolutely right. You're talking yeah. about gifts. I, I, I'm sure you've seen the picture of the icon that he gave the Pope with, uh, you know, the uh, Virgin uh, uh, Mary and a black dot, apparently, where uh, um, Jesus, the, the infant Jesus is supposed to be. I mean... It, very bizarre, and some also extremely bizarre pictures. I mean, really grotesque pictures. Blasphemy. Actually, uh, absolutely. Well, I think so. Yeah. Uh, outright blasphemy. Yeah. And again, I, it, unbelievable that the Pope of all people should accept that. But, you know, I, let's not go there again. I mean, you express yourself very powerfully, by the way, in that video we did, and it's been picked up as it should be. But anyway, we can, we can get sidetracked into that. But as you were correct... But that, I, that, I, was, I, that was, once again... That was two days ago before the icon story got picked up. When we did that yes. video, we didn't know about the icon. No, I, know, I mean, they I tried to hide it. I they tried to hide yeah. that, that image yeah. because, once again, it goes to the fact that when Alensky travels and he meets with people and he yes. talks with them, you know, 
the guy makes a terrible impression. He's just not yeah. likable. Like Hillary Clinton, he's not likable. He, he's not likable. I mean, it's a shambles. It, his performance is a shambles. And I have to say, these people are going to make the contrast. Even the Russian officials, they see Lavrov, Putin, people who are always immaculately dressed, extremely dignified in their person, know how to speak courteously and politely. And this, uh, um, fright, you know, this, this, this shambolic person who now turns up and who is said to represent Ukraine. And you're absolutely correct. And it, it, he doesn't make a good image. He didn't make a good image in the United States, if you remember, when he went and attended Congress and appeared in the way that he did. I remember when he came to London. The British media, the Daily Telegraph, had critical articles. I mean, he, again, correspondents didn't like him. That the people there didn't like him. Uh, there's been uh, programs about him in France, where he's recently been. French television. French television, exactly. And I cannot imagine any country in the world where um, the whole. Zelensky circus is going to going to go down less well than in Saudi Arabia. I mean, the Saudis are just going to find him um, both shambolic and bizarre and um, spectacularly undignified, which is, of course, exactly what he is. Which is why the Russians are loving this. Absolutely. They're loving this. They're, they're gonna, they're, they are going to enjoy it so much to see Zelensky in Saudi Arabia. Mm. It's, it's it's perfect for them. Yes. It really it really is. And and the French TV uh, channel, I think they actually did call him a circus. They called him a traveling circus, and they were laughing. Yes, they were laughing yes. at him, openly mocking yes. him yes. on French TV. And okay. France is you know one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, Alensky a supporter. But let's let's turn our attention to to um, the Seymour Hirsch article, which claims that Poland and the Baltic states are trying to push Alensky to some sort of peace agreement. Let's talk about the political article, which is saying that a senior U.S. official wants to freeze the conflict. I'm thinking it's, it's, it's Mr. J.S. That's the senior official that wants to uh, freeze the conflict. Uh, Kissinger. Kissinger kind of, to me, he kind of confirms a bit of Seymour Hersh's reporting because Kissinger gave an interview to The Economist and he said that Ukraine should be in NATO because it has the most powerful military. Okay, you can address that. He also said that, uh, that Russia has a very weak military. And that's what Poland, well, supposedly in Seymour Hersh's article, that's what Poland also said, that yeah. Poland is not so scared of Russia's military because it's very weak, they said. The Ukraine war has shown that Russia's military is super weak. And so Poland's like, you know, let's, let's get a peace with, uh, with Russia and and we can deal with uh, with the military, with the Russian military. Let's get Alensky to some sort of peace. So I, I think the the Kissinger uh, interview does confirm uh, some of what uh, Seymour Hirsch is uh, reporting with Poland. But my question is, why do they want to freeze the conflict? I mean, I I think I know why, but I want to hear your your opinion. And why does Poland and the Baltic nations? want the peace. And, and I don't think they really want the peace. I'm thinking they, are, they also want a type of frozen conflict as well. I mean, obviously, Poland and the Baltic nations don't want peace with Russia. That's, that's obvious. But they are looking at, at perhaps conning, 
conning Russia with another Minsk agreement. Anyway, uh, uh, I, I think I know what you're going to say because I think I'm I think I'm thinking the same thing as you. But what is your opinion to all of these articles and interviews that are coming out? The reason they all, they're all talking a piece is the opposite of the reason they're giving. It's not because the Russian military is weak. It is because the Russian military is strong. They're now becoming increasingly concerned that this offensive that Ukraine is going to launch, we're, we're hearing about it all the time, is going to fail, that uh, Ukraine could go down to defeat at some point, perhaps even fairly soon. And before that happens, they want to freeze the conflict stop the war, in other words, so that they can build up Ukraine again. That's what it's all about. I mean, it's as simple as that. That is what happened, by the way. With That's the actual true story of the Korean War. People don't know very much about this, but the Korean War was not going well for the US um, and, um, you know, the, the South Koreans and the Western powers. What happened, and it's now well known, is that Eisenhower threatened to use nuclear weapons. I mean, this is now academically established. The Russians and the Chinese at that time obviously weren't prepared to engage the United States in a nuclear war. At that time, the US had enormous superiority in nuclear weapons. And so they agreed to freeze the conflict. And of course, the United States and the Western powers, but especially the United States, then went through decades of building up South Korea, which has evolved, by the way, into a completely different society from the one it was in the 1950s. So, you know, we mustn't push these analogies too far. But that is the idea that they have. They've, they're not going to win the war conventionally. They now understand that. The offensive is going to fail. The Russian military is too strong. So we go for plan B. We freeze the conflict. We try to offer the Russians presumably some bait with lifting sanctions or easing sanctions in some way to try to get the Russians to agree to this. That's presumably why we see more attempts to impose more sanctions on diamonds, on those kind of things that are going on, Russian diamonds and all that kind of thing that's going on. And, you know, we freeze the conflict, we then strengthen Ukraine, we provide Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets and every kind of weapon that we can, and we prepare for the next round. Because that's the idea. That's what I think the plan is. Now, why the Russians would agree to that, I have absolutely no idea. It can only work conceivably if Russia's friends, China, India, Turkey, put pressure on Moscow to agree to that. I don't think they will put anywhere near the kind of pressure that would make the Russians accept a proposal like this. I mean, Minsk, Minsk three, which is what this would be, is almost certainly going to be unacceptable to Russian public opinion. And I think Putin himself probably won't accept it either. But at least that seems to be the plan. You know, the victory isn't going to come, so we freeze the conflict. And of course, what story do we circulate? We can't admit that the Russian army is too strong, so we, we spin it, we, 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 you know, upend it, we say the Russian army is too weak. Yeah, no, that's what they're saying. I think the political article actually says that it would be a, a Korea-style armistice because 
both militaries are at a stalemate. Yes. Right. And that would yes. be the, the, the grand bargain. Each yes. side can go to their respective public yes. and they can say we won. But the international community will be fed the, the collective West media narrative, which is that yes. Russia's military yes. couldn't defeat Ukraine and Ukraine couldn't overcome uh, Russia's superiority, though they did a, an incredible job uh, holding yes. Russia back. And that would be the that would be the grand bargain. Uh, you know, the, the question is, if Putin were to agree to this, it would essentially be, in my opinion, it would it would be the beginning of the end for the Putin government. I mean, I to agree, agree to something yeah. like this, I think, would open up Putin to some sort of, uh, I don't want to say regime change, but, you know, I, I think the Russian public and many people inside the Kremlin would probably be like, okay, this is... This government has to has to end yes. if he yes. were to, I mean, to agree to Minsk three, Minsk three, four, five, six, seven, whatever. Absolutely, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think I think this is this would be for Russians. It would be a case of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, it, it, it would also harden, crystallize a belief that's very widespread in Russia that Putin is uh, constantly obsessed with diplomacy to the point where he sometimes loses sight of what diplomacy is for, that he likes, you know, agreeing things and reaching compromises and making deals and that he's far too soft and temporising. I think there will be an enormous amount of criticism in Russia. The problem in that, of course, is that, you know, if we follow that through, yes, Putin might find it very difficult to remain president of Russia. I mean, we might start to see probably the end of the Putin era. But it's important to stress that what would come after would not be, almost certainly in that case, a liberal government in Russia. It'd be a more hardline government than we ha- than the one we have now. But I, I have to say all of this, I can't see Putin accepting these ideas. He, he will probably say, you know, look, let, let me listen to what you have to say, but I've made my five, four demands at the beginning of the war, um, independence for Donbass, uh, um, um, denazification, uh, demilitarization, Ukraine outside uh, 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 NATO, and I don't think that he's going to budge from these. I mean, in a, in a kind of a way, the very fact of those four demands <laughs> precludes the kind of career-type armistice proposal that people are discussing. Well, and, and NATO is not hiding the fact that they're building up their, their their goal, at least in the future, is to build up their military so that they can uh, take on Russia. I mean, they gave, they gave yeah. an announcement just the other day. I believe a NATO general uh, or commander gave uh, gave an interview the other day, and he said, "Yeah, we're we're looking at building up our military in the next two to three years so that we can take on Russia." I believe it was uh, um, a commander from the Netherlands that said. Yes. That. So I mean, they're openly they're openly admitting that yes. their goal in the next two, three years is to rearm and, and restock all their weapons and to get ready for another yes. go yes. at Russia. So, you know, what, what, uh, so yeah, Putin would, I mean, the Russian government, I mean, you know, to accept a, another Minsk three, I think would be just, just fatal for the Russian government. I agree. And, and, and again, again, I want to stress, why would they do so anyway? I mean, the, the tide, there's, when people talk about a stalemate, 
First of all, there isn't a stalemate. I mean, you know, we're seeing you know, every single day now massive explosions across Ukraine. Its air defence system is depleted. It's suffering heavy losses in all sorts of places. We're, we're going to discuss the battlefield situation in a moment. But what people call a stalemate is a war of attrition. And the Russians are winning that war of attrition. They're gaining territory and ground and they're destroying the Ukrainian army systematically every single day. So it's not a stalemate. It's a situation in which the Ukrainian military is being ground down. So why would the Russians decide at this point that they should call it all off? From their point of view, they're winning. Why call off a war where the advantage is shifting to them? Okay, uh, two questions which I guess can lead into the, the situation on the ground. Uh, what if, and this is, I think, pretty, a pretty big long shot, but what if uh, somehow, some way, Ukraine does accept uh, Russia's conditions, the conditions that you said, demilitarization, denazification, accepting Crimea, uh, not getting into NATO, or do you see that as just such an impossibility that it's just not going to happen? What do you make of the Financial Times article where they're giving Ukraine just five months, either gain yes. territory and go on the offensive or else the money stops? Yes. And then you can uh, segue into the, the situation on the ground and we can wrap well, this, this is, video this up. Is, right, OK, let's, 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 take the, let's take all of those points. I mean, the five-month uh, ultimatum, because that's what it looks like, is, is – I mean, that tells its own story. I mean, the West – has given up expecting that he can win this war. I think that's the first point to understand. We're coming up with the various excuses and rationalizations that you know we can't keep on supplying, providing funding for this war indefinitely. The United States can the one thing they're not short of is money. Let me put it in that straightforward way. So they their, their forces, their, their arsenals are becoming depleted. They can't sustain this war longer. They're giving up hope of this offensive, and we'll come to that in a moment. So, yes, five months is probably all Ukraine has in those terms. So that is why they want some kind of deal to be done now. They want the deal to be done this year because they can't afford it to go into the 2024 of course, there's also the concern about what would happen in the election next year in the United States if it went on into 2024. So there's all these things coming together, and this is essentially the ultimatum that is be given, being given to Ukraine. Now, how, what would happen if Ukraine came forward and accepted, publicly accepted those, those demands that Putin made? Now... Remember, it came very close to doing so in March last year. I can't imagine that Zelensky himself could do that. So we go back to that Polish thing, that Polish story that Seymour Hersh is circulating. Get Zelensky himself to step down. Put someone else in, perhaps Zeluzhny, who we're not seeing very much of at the moment. He comes up with this sort of proposal, he says along to the Russians, we go back to what was agreed in March 2022, 
we accept all your demands. Problem is, I don't think the Russians will trust it. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I think that they would demand very, very tough guarantees. And when I say tough guarantees, they would now demand, at the minimum, that Ukraine recognise the losses of territory, that it recognises Crimea, Donbass, the four regions, as part of Russia. Now, I don't think any Ukrainian politician or political leader, even Zelensky, could do that at the moment. And I can't see the Russians settling for anything less. Right. There would also, the by the way, on all, the there would all, before I finish, there would also be, I'm sure, Russian demands for a very, very extensive demilitarized zone. Um, even Budanov is accepting that there would have to be a demilitarized zone. But certainly all, uh, any remaining territory east of the Dnieper that was, remained under nominal Ukrainian control, including Kharkov, would be absorbed within that demilitarized zone, which, given that the Russian army would be there, very nearby, it could occupy. I mean, I can't really see that the Russians would accept anything less if they were even prepared to accept that at this point. So we are not going to go back to March 2022. I, I think that that train has left the station, if I can put it like that. Military situation on the ground. So three things to say. Firstly, back can I just can I just, yeah. before you go to the military yeah. situation, can I ask you a yeah. question? Would, would Russia demand a new type, a new government, perhaps? Yes. Or, or an election? Yes. 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 It would demand a, an election. It would obviously want to see, um, um, a, you know, agencies like the Azov, the regiment, and all of those IDAR, all those entities. It would want to see them closed down. Um, I can uh, exactly the SBU, all, all of that. I mean, there would be a major fundamental shift in the way in which the uh, Ukrainian political system was organised. It would want people like Medvedchuk back in Kiev, um, um, his party reorganised and reformed. It would want concessions from Ukraine, which I just don't think Ukraine, even a Zeluzhny regime in place of a Zelensky regime, would be able to accept. At least not for the moment. At least not this side of a military defeat. So th th that's what I have to say, say about this. Now, military situation. So I I'm sure you've been getting the news. Yesterday, the last important fortified area under Ukrainian control in Bakhmut, which is the so-called domino area, uh, came under the control of the Wagner forces. They they captured it basically in the space of um, just over a day. I mean, you know, this is the last big fortified position. There are still, I understand, two places in Bakhmut that remain to be captured, but the speculation is that that will be done either today or tomorrow. Perhaps, let's say Sunday. So we got just a couple of days now before the whole of Bakhmut comes under uh, Russian control. Now, Ukraine has been trying to launch this counterattack 
on the flanks. And the reports are that they've now basically pulled out every single unit that they have in the area to engage in that counterattack. They've not succeeded in achieving any breakthroughs anywhere at all, at least this is the latest information that I have. But what has happened is that the Russians have lured them into fire traps, something that they've done before. The Ukrainians are suffering extremely heavy losses as a result of this counterattack. The counterattack is failing. It is not breaking through. It's not gaining any important ground. And once Bakhmut falls, the Russians will go back on the attack. And it's I suspect that the Russians won't just, having taken Bakhmut, rest. I think, unlike what happened last year when, you know, after the Svet Severodonetsk Lizzy Chance battles, the Russians did rest. I think this time they would finish off these Ukrainian forces that are engaging in this counterattack and they'd probably move on to capture some of the villages Bogdanovka, Ivanivska, perhaps Chasovya. Um, Orejo, Vasilyevka, all of these places that we've been hearing about for so long. In other words, they would create an area around Bakhmut to secure Bakhmut, to make sure that Bakhmut itself is now firmly under Russian control. Then perhaps they might pause, regroup, re-establish themselves before they move further west again. But, you know, let's not look too far forward. Bakhmut, Battle of Bakhmut, coming to the end. The Russians are now literally within days, perhaps even hours of victory there. Elsewhere, major Russian bombing attacks in every part of Ukraine. And notice that they're hitting positions, they're hitting ammunition dumps. They're able to do this now almost at will. The Ukrainian air defense system seems to have essentially broken down and we're having what looked like increasingly implausible fairy tales coming out of Kiev about what happened to the Patriot system. So they didn't want to admit that it had been damaged, that they admitted that it had been damaged, that they said that it's been repaired. <laughs> then we're getting more reports now from the American military media that, in fact, the damage was actually very extensive and that one battery has been completely destroyed. There's one left still. But anyway, I, I get the sense that the U.S. is extremely unhappy about the whole Patriot missile debacle. They didn't want to send these Patriot missiles to Ukraine at all. They were pushed into doing it by some of their European allies. And they want to quietly draw down the curtain over the whole affair. But the important thing is the Russians are now launching missile airstrikes all over Ukraine. The air defence doesn't seem to be functioning anymore to any great degree. And what's happening? Ammunition dumps being destroyed, fuel dumps being destroyed, warehouses with weapons being destroyed. All of these are the weapons, the ammunition, the fuel that was supposed to be kept back to be used in this offensive. And Russian commentators, officials are now becoming very confident that once this offensive happens, the Russians will have little difficulty repelling it. So that's yeah, that's the situation on the battlefronts in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, they've destroyed uh, a large amount of, of all the weapons that the collective West delivered 
to Ukraine yes. for the counteroffensive, this offensive. It's, it's, a yes. lot of it has just gone up in smoke. All of the, the U.S. and the EU uh, taxpayer money and all the money that they printed and all of these contracts for the, that, that they gave out to the MIC for the purpose of, of getting all these weapons to Ukraine so they could uh, go on this big offensive. It, it's, it's all been, been blown yes. up pretty much. Yes. That's, that is... <laughs> what, what, what can you say about that? I mean, it's... it's uh, you know, the Russians played it well. The yes. Russians played it really, really well. And, and, and one final question that I have is, uh, what do you make of the fact that that they're going after the Patriot systems in Kiev. Do you think they're just going after the Patriot systems just to show that they can take out the Patriot system? That's one option. They're just saying, you know what? We can easily take out this wonder weapon. Let us show you what we can do. Or do you think that they're actually going after the Patriot uh, air defense systems in Kiev because they, uh, they have plans on Kiev? Yes, they do. I'm sure they do. Now, can I just say, I mean, the first thing that you said is, is I'm sure a part of this, this is in part a message to the United States that your investment in Ukraine is failing. You, the Patriot systems were by far the most expensive items that the United States has supplied to Ukraine. And apparently there's a report, I think it's in the Turkish media that over the course of this single missile strike on the Patriot system, the US essentially saw disappear something like a third of Patriot missile production in you know, annual missile production. I mean, a, a third of the annual production of missiles was destroyed, either launched into the sky to no purpose or destroyed on the ground. So that's a signal to the United States. Don't think that if you invest more weapons in Ukraine, that's going to work out for you. On the contrary, we can deal with all your weapons, even your most sophisticated ones. You're risking humiliation if you do that. We see that with the F-16 saga, by the way. The US is very, very unwilling to supply F-16s, despite the pressure from some people in Europe and in Ukraine, of course, as well, to do that. They can, up to a certain point, hide what happened with the Patriots. They can't really do that with the F-16s. And that's, that's one important message the Russians want to convey. But yes, I think they are thinking about Kiev. And, you know, they are degrading Kiev's defences, its air defences. Remember back in... The spring of 2022, in February, March 2022, when the Russians were outside Kiev, the Ukrainian air defense system was operating effectively. Now it's almost collapsed. The Patriot system is clearly not a substitute. The Russians may be planning something in Kiev. And of course, perhaps that's one reason why Zelensky himself wants to stay away. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll give you another question before we end this video. Um, is, is it accurate to say that, that Russia cares about Odessa, deeply cares about Odessa from a historic context, as well as a strategic context, the Black Sea and all that? Um, and, and 
the more this conflict has gone on, perhaps the Russian military has, or, or the Russian command, Putin administration has understood that Kiev, at first, I would have said that Russia also cares about Kiev from a historical, cultural, but also strategic standpoint. But I'm starting to think now that the Russian command has said, you know, let's let's not think about Odessa and moving to the south. Let's just go through uh, the center, maybe from the north, and deal with Kiev. And, you know, it's not, it's not so important to us anymore, the, the city of Kiev. Yeah, I, I understand your point. Can I just say something? I am not a, again, I want to stress again, two things. I'm not a military person, so I'm not able to second guess strategies. And the second. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not asking yeah, military, I just, yeah, I'm not yeah, asking yeah. I, military I just strategy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't know what the thinking is in Moscow, but I've got to just say this. A lot of Russians have been making comments recently that if you want to get to Odessa, then the best way to do it is to do what was done during the Second World War, which is not to crawl along the Black Sea coast until you get to Odessa, because that's difficult. There's lots of water obstacles in the way. There's the Dnieper. Um, the West is nearby. It's to go through central Ukraine. That was what happened in the Second World War. Maybe that's the plan. That would make a kind of logic. And, you know, Kiev, remember this, is only 80 kilometres from the Russian border. And... Uh, it's more vulnerable. The Russians have been putting a lot of pressure on places like Chernigov, Sumy over the last few weeks. Maybe that is the Russian plan. And yes, I do think the Russians care about Odessa an awful lot. I say it again, I've said it before. I don't think that the Russians will want to see this conflict end without some kind of satisfactory resolution from their point of view of the Odessa issue. But perhaps Odessa isn't the primary target. Perhaps they will say to themselves, the centre of Ukrainian power is, and that's the centre of Ukraine. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, Okay. We'll uh, leave it there. TheDuran.locals.com. We are on... Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Rockfin, and Telegram. And go to the Durant shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day.